Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, Mushrik, it's uh, wonderful to have you along uh, to the podcast today. I know you and I have been talking about this. Gosh, it feels like uh, probably a year we've been talking about you coming on. So finally, in the midst of yet another COVID lockdown, where we uh, no doubt uh, are looking forward to having some good human interaction. Here we are, welcome. Uh, Why don't we just get started, Wishwick? Tell us a little bit about your current professional responsibilities. Yeah, sure. And yeah, you're right. We've been we've been talking about this for a while. So yeah, look, thanks for having me. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed your podcast in the past. So I feel honored to be part of this. Um, so yeah, Mushrik Rahman, I'm the Executive General Manager at Velmec Limited. And for those who don't know who Velmec Limited are, we're an ASX uh, listed energy resources and infrastructure services company. So fundamentally, yeah, we provide construction, commissioning and maintenance services uh, to those sectors that I just sort of mentioned. So we've got about 360 people nationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, my role looks after the asset services division. And, and that division really is about providing sort of a broad range of specialist asset lifecycle services. So predominantly around maintenance, testing and industrial services. Okay. And uh, what sort of clients do you work with? Yeah. So we tend to work uh, directly for, you know, your tier one. So if we think about the energy sector, clients like Origin Energy, um, Santos, uh, we work with clients like Chevron, so that's um, you know in that in that energy space, uh, and then outside of that energy space, we're doing a lot with both the resources infrastructure, so big again tier ones such as you know Glencore. Um, we're doing uh, some work with um, the mining companies as well, mm-hmm. so the likes of BHP and so on and too. Mm-hmm. And you've been there for just going on eighteen months. How old is the actual business? Yeah, so the business formed in two thousand thirteen. That's when it was listed. Yeah. Um, and the it's a, it's quite an interesting company because whilst we're listed, it's majority owned still by the board and the management team. Okay. And so when the company was formed, uh, a group of people who had known each other for over 30 years actually formed Valmec and mm-hmm. um, really wanted to get back into especially that energy space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they kicked off things with construction, which was um, core to their DNA. But over time, have moved into maintenance. I'm sure we'll um, we'll get into. And I think the division that you're looking after is fairly new. Is that correct? Yeah, the division that I'm looking after has actually been a result of a couple of acquisitions that Valmec did um, around 2015 and 2017. So they started recognizing that you know the construction cycle was always lumpy, mm-hmm. uh, and so they wanted to try and smooth things out with more sort of recurring revenue maintenance style contracts. And so they acquired two businesses which played very much in that space. So um, they they sort of formed the asset services division and um, that's what they, you know, with the integration of two sort of businesses and acquisitions, um, you know, Steve, our managing director, asked me to really integrate the two and, and continue the growth and set up the right strategy. So you didn't join as a result of the acquisitions. You were brought on independently than that. Yeah, correct. Correct. Yeah. So um, the acquisitions were much earlier, but the the board and our managing director recognised that someone needed to sort of pull all this together because mm-hmm. you know we think we've got quite a unique um, unique place in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Okay, fantastic. Well, before we uh, 
talk more a bit about that, a bit more about that. Uh, let's, uh, you know, hear a little bit of Mushrik's uh, backstory. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, where you were born, mum and dad, and, you know, we'll uh, have a little trip through memory lane. Yeah, sounds good. Um, yeah, going, going back a little while now, not, not too long, but um, <laughs> I'm born in Bangladesh, actually. Um, right. uh, and that's where, where the name originates, and, and mm -hmm. so I grew up there. I grew up in the capital, Dhaka, um, and in 1994, um, the family and I relocated to Christ oh, sorry, to Wellington okay. in New Zealand. And um, I guess part of that move was, you know, my dad uh, had recognised that in terms of opportunities, uh, education, lifestyle, um, life was probably going to be better in uh, somewhere like New Zealand versus mm -hmm. uh, staying in Bangladesh. So, yeah, moved move there and, uh, and spent uh, quite a few years over there. And then actually moved subsequently to Christchurch. Okay. Uh, so my dad ended up wanting to be a, a teacher. So he went to the uh, University of Canterbury and, um, yeah, wanted to, you know, really kick off his uh, active uh, teaching career there. Mm -hmm. And so then spent a lot of time there. So what was his career prior to that then? Yeah, it's, uh, it is interesting because I think it probably um, has reflected on who I am. So in Bangladesh, he was actually the director of education. Okay. And he, um, you know, well, certainly my grandparents, my dad's a pretty humble sort of bloke. He, um, he wouldn't sort of openly share it, but I know my grandparents and my mum always just tell me that, you know, he got to that position at a very young age. So 27 to become director of education is mm -hmm. quite a feat. Um, you know, there's never been any, um, I guess, flow on, as I said, my, my dad's never really openly talked about that, but you sort of, as a kid, you sort of hear that. Um, so that was his career. And then when he went to New Zealand, he, he struggled a little bit to get back, get into government, um, you know, naturally, given that it was a foreign country. So he went, he pursued a master's in education. That's mm -hmm. that was the whole connection to teaching. Mum was a tr quite a traditional housewife as it was back in the day in Bangladesh. So she really looked after the kids, um, you know, had quite a large extended family with uncles and aunties and cousins and so on in Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. um, but when we relocated to New Zealand and, you know, dad couldn't get uh, his formal career up and running, you know, she had to a, learn English. And, and I've always been, you know, so proud of, you know, what my mum's achieved there from not having any background. So learn English, but also then had to do, um, you know, part-time work, you know, be at supermarkets or, you know, both of them at one stage were, um, you know, picking mushrooms at the farm to try and make ends meet and doing evenings, um, which I'm sure is quite common in, in mm. a lot of immigrant type families. And so um, uh, you did your university studies in um, New Zealand? Yes, yeah. So I actually kicked off um, university studies in New Zealand and uh, pursued a career in electrical engineering. Mm -hmm. um, so the University of Canterbury. Um, prior to that, and sort of in parallel, I actually also formed my own computer services business. Oh, that's right. So um, that was that was quite exciting. You know, um, you know, you sort of asked about parents and um, influences and so on. You know, I sort of shared dad's side where he was, you know, call it executive at quite a young age, but. My mum's side of the family actually had quite an entrepreneurial spirit. So mm -hmm. both grandparents and my uncles all had businesses of their own. And so that sort of spirit always used to sit, you know, call it with me and wanting to start my own thing. So computer services, I was sort of passionate about it, um, really kicked that off. Um, so it wasn't anything major, but it was enough to um, make ends meet. It was really servicing, um, you know, both small businesses as well as consumers um, be it new computers or also just actually fixing uh, fixing computers themselves. And sorry, was that when you were at uni or was it sort of after you'd left uni and got in a, your first professional job? 
No, it was actually during uni. Right. So that off. It was your side hustle. My side hustle, which I, it was going pretty well, actually. Um, and, um, yeah, really, really enjoyed it. And uh, it was, yeah, as I said, um, you know, kicking lots of goals. You know, you were learning about business. You were learning mm. about entrepreneurship. You were learning about customers. But, you know, being sort of solo operator, you were also um, having to do everything. Your stuff is, you know, you, you know when you probably kicked off your business. Uh, I still wake up to that sort almost every day. <laughs> Exactly. Right. Exactly. So what uh, what then lured you to Australia? Yeah, so um, after the education piece that my dad actually relocated us to Christchurch for, he ended up wanting to then um, further that and mm-hmm. actually pursued a PhD. So he got a scholarship at the University of Queensland in Brisbane. Okay. And at that stage, um, you know, I was having the time of my life in New Zealand. I was, I was quite stable and set. So um, he relocated with my younger brother. Mm-hmm. And my uh, mum relocated, and so he then kicked off um, life in Brisbane. And, you know, not long after he had moved, he kept saying, look, you need to come here. Australia's got so many more opportunities. Um, you really need to check this out. And, you know, I had this you know, fear of snakes and spiders and you just don't get any of those things in, in New Zealand. I, mean, I joke about it. But, you know, because life was so good, I went, I'll, I'll wait, I'll wait. And then eventually I came for a few holidays, spent some time, really fell in love with the country, mm-hmm. fell in love with the weather, the people and so on, and actually said, okay, let's let's relocate myself to Brisbane. So that was in 2005. And I actually tried to move the computer services business across. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, yeah, sorry. Uh, so uh, at this stage, though, you were also working full time as an engineer, correct? Uh, no, I was just actually doing my um, studies. Right, oh, okay, right. Um, yeah, okay. so studies on the computer services business. Right. So what, what um, you said, I tried to move my computer business across. So, you know, what inhibited you from kicking that off here properly? Yeah, it was um, quite interesting. I came across, so in, in New Zealand, I had all the relationships with the full supply chain. So for mm-hmm. my wholesalers, you'd get parts, you'd build computers or, you know, fix and so on. When I came to Australia and I went through that same pursuit, talked to a whole range of wholesalers, what was really interesting about Australia was that the pricing that I was getting from my wholesalers were almost the same, in fact, sometimes more expensive than the little computer shop around the corner who was right. actually grey importing parts mm-hmm. directly. Mm-hmm. In New Zealand, there was a lot more restriction around grey imports. Right. So you could still be competitive. So when I sort of looked at that and then I reflected on, um, you know, my relationships weren't there with, you know, SMEs and the consumer market, I sort of parked that and didn't pursue that. But mm-hmm. because I've been studying, I actually then ended up finishing my engineering degree at the University of Queensland. Uh-huh. And then off to uh, work for PowerLink. Correct. Right. So, um and so that was a really, um, it wasn't a, a massive shift because I was already studying electrical engineering. And then as I was doing my final year thesis, uh, I chose a topic in uh, high voltage. So mm-hmm. PowerLink made a lot of natural sense. <laughs> and so, yeah, I joined them as a you know, typical project engineer, graduate program and so on. And really, yeah, moved, moved my way through um, PowerLink once I finished formal studies. Right, and so that's an organisation certainly been through, you know, some massive change in uh, in recent years. Um, and so, I, and so then you're really sort of pursuing that engineering career from PowerLink, then to 10X, 
and then uh, um, eventually joining um, ALS, where you were you were there for ten years. So, you know, a fairly substantive amount of time and and quite a number of you know um, role changes. So, talk us through how that all evolved. Yeah, it, it um, you know it actually started at at PowerLink, and um, when I was sort of going through you know post studies learning about the different areas of the business, I was immediately attracted to project engineering, project management, mm-hmm. probably a bit of a reflection on the fact that you know, I ran my, my own business and entrepreneurial and so on versus becoming a technical specialist. Uh, so I sort of, I guess, figured that out, you know, quite early um, post the graduation piece. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I got into project management and was really enjoying it. You know, I was for, for whatever reason, they ended up giving me quite chunky projects and I was getting exposure to the board, you know, very early on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really enjoyed that and, um, you know, mentoring, and I'm sure we'll, we'll sort of touch on that uh, over, over our conversation today, but, you know, I had a really good mentor and, you know, he shared with me, look, this is great. You know, you're, you're kicking some goals. You need to see the broader world and you really need to think about what else is out there not just in, in the, call it the government-owned corporation bubble. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, you know, he was right because, you know, they have their advantages and disadvantages. So I decided to make a move across to 10X. So it wasn't a massive leap. So at, at PowerLink, I was working on high-voltage substation and transmission line projects on the client side. 10X were doing something very similar. Um, I actually ended up joining in Adelaide. So that was a relocation to Adelaide. Mm-hmm. And that business was doing very similar things for the PowerLink equivalent, which is Electronet. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in Adelaide. So got sort of straight into the game of still that high voltage transmission line substations, but was working on the contractor side. And that really exposed me to the good, you know, commercial skills that's required, you know, business development. Again, a lot of things that, you know, sort of been practiced in my um, computer services business, but now applying it in a different space. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was a that was a bit of a journey um, and really learned a lot from my sort of, you know, I think it was 10 or 11 months there. And then um, during that year, so that was 2009, it was also, you know, you'd remember this, GFC. Uh, and my dad was uh, came a little bit unwell. So I wanted to be close to him in case anything happened. So, um, you know, I, I left, well, I was looking for an exit from Tenex. And because it was GFC, it was very difficult to find a job, mm-hmm. especially back in Brisbane. And I actually got a, a call, um, coincidentally, from a headhunter. Um, and they sort of called me about this role, project manager role with a company called Pearl Street at the time. And I had never heard of them. And so when I sort of spoke to them about that role, they said, look, it's a, it's a business that sort of operates in oil and gas. They operate in you know, mining and infrastructure, civil infrastructure, um, water and so on. But they're looking for some professional project management. It was a growing organization. It was a small ASX listed company. And so uh, the initial conversation was really good. Did not much happen. And then a couple of months later, the recruiter, the owner of the company calls back and said, oh, look, this totally fell off the wayside. Are you still interested? And so I actually ended up saying, yeah, look, I am. I would like to relocate back to Brisbane. And so I did, you know, went through the interviews and so on and actually joined what was then Pearl Street uh, as a project manager. Mm-hmm. And just as I, was, as I was joining, ALS had made a bid to acquire Pearl Street. Um, and acquire the entire business. And, and naturally, in a senior sort of management role, you always wonder what's going to happen. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, I pursued it. It was too late. I'd accepted. Joined the business right at the transition of ALS acquiring and integrating uh, Pearl Street. And um, look, probably was one of the best things that could have happened to the business, but also from a you know 
personal career as well because it opened up a much broader um, range of opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, uh, I had quite a bit to do with ALS uh, around that time, not obviously more recently because, once again, they've been through, you know, some massive change. But um, uh, certainly, you know, during that period, they were highly regarded and, you know, um, high growth, you know, um, excellent leadership team, extremely strong board. So, uh, uh, for the fact that you were there for 10 years and, and you, you moved from a project management role right through into a general management role, um, how did that all unfold? Yeah, it, um, again, I, I reflect back and, you know, I've been asked a few times now from a, a few different people on how was that experience you sort of went through the, the ranks you know, very quickly. It was sort of five, six years and then sort of leading the country. And when I reflect back, um, you know, you, you've known me for a little while, ambitious sort of guy. Um, I almost felt like everything was going too slow. But, you know, when you really <laughs> reflect back that way, you go, oh, my God, how did that all transpire? And, you know, it, it was really coming down to a few things and things that I guess I personally believe in. Um, one is, you know, failing fast. Uh, and, and I think that's really important because what was happening was, you know, when I joined, you know, they wanted some professional project management that that seen my CV and that I'd worked for a government-owned corporation. So the, the corporate policies, procedures, systems, um, I, I brought that, but I also brought the commercial experience from my own business, but also the tenex experience. So they wanted to instill some of that and really connect with the client um, when I first joined. So as I joined, um, again, certainly learned things the hard way because it was a very foreign industry to me. The, the capability of the business and the technical services that were provided were, again, very different. They were more mechanical materials engineering based. Mm-hmm. And uh, naturally, my background was electrical and computers and so on. But failing both at leadership but also how to run businesses and getting thrown things my way and really going, right, that didn't work, let's try something different, I think was sort of quite an underpinning of how I moved through the various ranks. Mm -hmm. So as I sort of got into project management, um, you know, some of the projects that I was running and the contracts all of a sudden were really turning into good profitable projects for the company, Um, I started having, you know, a bit of a team after, again, you know, I, I own some of the leadership development that I've had to make through the through my journey and how to you know really work on leadership myself mm-hmm. you know, where I've failed, but really actively worked on that. So all of a sudden I was starting to have you know a strong set of team around me that was getting noticed by the organization. And so when I guess they were sort of seeing what I was doing at in Queensland with projects, all of a sudden that got the attention of a few GMs. And all of a sudden they went, mm, what about actually rolling this out more nationally? So all of a sudden I got exposed to the national business and rolling out of processes and systems, especially in that project management. So, you know, became program manager effectively mm-hmm. um, and respecting that that wasn't a full-time gig. What also happened was the business was trying to differentiate themselves and getting into a more technological space. So how do we actually do something that's not, you know, what our competitors are doing? So they set it up, set up this sort of advanced inspection business, which was using the latest technology to do things differently. It's quite a small team um, mm-hmm. and it was sort of running, you know, independently between each state and they wanted someone to pull it all together and grow it. And, you know, again, uh, they sort of asked me, would you like to take this on? And of course I said, yes. So I generally put my hand up to say yes to anything. And so when they gave me that, it was just, again, turned very successful very quickly. You know, we were within, within 18 months, we were highly profitable, organically grew this thing, you know, really strongly. 
um, with quite a small team and, and but leveraging the broader business. So, you know, that was kind of a bit of a natural move that you sort of take what you're doing as a team member and, uh, you know, what the processes and then really implement that nationally and had that exposure. And then um, what was interesting, and this actually almost felt like a backward step at the time, hence I said it felt like things were moving slow, is um, the business had secured some really big LNG construction contracts. Mm -hmm. And um, things were going, uh, you know, pretty bad, um, to put it bluntly. And so I was asked, you know, with your background and what you've done in projects, et cetera, we really need you to parachute in there and, and help. And at the time, I was having a really good time doing what I was doing, but um, agreed to it. And, uh, again, it was the, the normal things, you know, people, the culture, the right management structure on site, client relationships was a massive one. And all of a sudden, this thing turned around very quickly and you know we'd secured sort of two out of the three sites all of a sudden we were asked to go and fix the underperformance of another contractor on the third site uh, and then we won more and more work both in Australia and globally with uh, the you know our end client was Bechtel mm -hmm. so that was that was pretty exciting and again the business had really seen you know what I was sort of you know hitting hitting goals both you know finances is nice obviously in a commercial organization but also you know all of a sudden I had a, a great team around me you know, we were kicking goals. We were we had really strong engagement. Mm -hmm. So then, um, yeah, from there, it really started moving into then the general management type role, where it was obvious that you know I had lots of strategic thinking. I, I got the leadership right. I had good customer engagement at the right levels, uh, and so really, yeah, went through that chain and, and rose to the rose to the top of Australia. And at what point did you decide to go back and do an MBA? Funnily enough, I decided to go and do an MBA right as I joined, um, well, Pearl Street slash ALS. Right. So it was quite early. Um, yeah. And did you find, uh, you obviously did that as most people who do MBAs, including myself do, um, did at the time. It's like, okay, well, if I'm stepping up into these leadership roles, you know, there are, there are certain skills that I've developed, but, you know, I need to broaden out my leadership and management expertise. Um, did you find the MBA quite useful in that regard? I personally did. And yep. <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sure you also get this a lot of, you know, when should I do an MBA? How should I do it, et cetera? Um, and what ended up happening is, again, I couldn't have, I couldn't have written the script, but I joined Pearl Street, turned to ALS. Mm. I joined as a project manager and the, <laughs> excuse me, the year that I joined, the projects were actually, um, you know, slowed down until later in the year. The business had secured a contract uh, out at BP and all of a sudden, instead of project managing, they said, we need you to run the contract. Here are all your new direct reports. Mm -hmm. Never had direct reports. Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening is I started my MBA and the first course was leading people in teams. And then through, again, a whole range of coincidences, I really, as I did a subject of the MBA, for whatever reason, it just happened to line up with the business. So Later that year, I did the innovation course and ALS, you know, you, you know who, how strongly you just mentioned it. Mm -hmm. and they want to run the year of innovation. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden I was getting thrown, hey, why don't you run this for us? So um, I found it quite useful, but I took a long time. I took four years to do my MBA because mm -hmm. I really, really wanted to apply every course that I did back in the workplace mm -hmm. versus get a quick degree and then go, yep, I know it all and then go and apply. Mm. I was, yeah, so yeah, very useful for, for my circumstance. Well, that's, yeah, look, I think, um, you know, I, I did an executive MBA, I finished in 2003, and 
for quite some time, I was being invited back by the MBA schools, UQ, Griffith, QUT, et cetera, yeah, to talk to the students about how to get a job, right? Because I'd gone, at that stage, I was in recruitment. I used to go back and, uh, you know, so I'd stand in front of a classroom of, uh, you know, 20 to 200 MBA uh, students. And I say, okay, what do you want to know? One of the very first questions I'd always get asked was, you know, how much is my MBA worth in the marketplace? And I'd say, it's not worth anything. Um, and then, you know, how much higher a job can I get now that I've got an MBA? And I'd say, look, it, it really, um, practical experience and key achievements and transferable skills are valued far more highly than an MBA. And whilst I definitely, you know, uh, uh, I'm very pleased that I did an MBA and uh, I certainly, for the right people, I recommend that they would do one. You know, it's not this magic wand that you suddenly do an MBA and you're, you know, in a C-suite leadership role. And I, I think a lot of people still kind of believe that that's the case. Um, and, uh, you know, I think also if you think about what the MBA was traditionally for, it was for somebody like you. You know, you've done an engineering degree. You've now got out, worked as an engineer, started to move into management roles, grow a team, and, and it's like, oh, I, I need you know a bit of marketing, a bit of finance, a bit of strategy, a bit of HR, etc. Um, whereas what you see a lot now is somebody goes, they do an undergraduate business degree, and then as soon as they finish that, they do an MBA, and they come out at 24 with an MBA. The only job they've ever had is a Kentucky Fried Chicken, and um, it's really devalued that qualification, so uh, yeah, um, which is a shame. But like you, you know, personally, I've got a lot of value out of it. Um, uh, so anyway, I don't get invited back by any of the uh, MBA schools to talk to their students anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You're too honest. <laughs> anyway, so what? Okay, so ten, almost eleven years at ALS. Yeah, it, May two thousand and twenty. You know, you you left to join Valmex. So what? You know. Um, uh, what sponsored that decision? Yeah, um, you know, would I have done it again, given that it was the entry into the COVID year? Um, look, I, I would have again. Mm -hmm. So what triggered it? So Steve and I, um, who's our managing director, Steve Droplich, we've known each other for a few years and uh, I've sort of followed the Velmec business. Uh, over these years, I've watched those acquisitions that they made and really watched what they did. And, you know, he sort of came to me and said, look, I'm really thinking about I need this EGM um, executive role that's really going to help me drive take and take Velmec into Velmec, what he's labeled Velmec 2.0. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when he, him and I got talking, I sort of went, yeah, you know, this is something that's um, I think I can make a lot of impact in given sort of my quite diverse background. I want to, I want to give this a go. And, you know, 10 years with, with ALS was just wonderful. And as you said, a great business to be a part of and learn so much. I did have, again, a good mentor of mine, you know, talking about career planning and where do I want to end up and so on, did say thing, uh, something to me once quite, quite some years ago, which is if you sort of stay in this now for 15 years, you're probably going to be labelled as you can only sort of really work in this industry. Now, that's a huge generalisation because, as you know, you're in recruitment, so you'd know transferable skills and so on. But that did sort of sit with me and I went, you know, this is a good time to go. I've sort of been around this particular industry for quite some time. Mm. If something genuine or an opportunity like this sort of comes up and also quite a focus around uh, mergers and acquisitions, which was mm. also something that I was passionate about, um, let me let me try this. And so that's what really triggered the conversation and then the, the move. And um, 
I remember signing the contract and then literally next year, this COVID-19 thing blew out of control. But um, as I said, the, the sort of the part, the rest is history. So um, that's what ultimately, yeah, triggered a, a bit of a move. And I guess for me, um, I've always tried to be, uh, it's probably a terrible um, title. I'm not sure actually who I stole it from, but a specialist generalist. Right. So those moves that I've made from, you know, going from owning own business to, you know, an electrical engineering sort of path, but then moving into project management. I always said, you know, when I moved to ALS for the first time, if I can manage a project in my technical specialty, given that project management is all about, you know, commercial procurement, HR, safety, and so on, why can't I do this for anything? Obviously, it's got to be related. So when I joined ALS, I've made that conscious decision to do that. And so this move to Valmec was, again, something very similar. There's elements of ALS in this business, but fundamentally, it's quite a different business. It goes back into very much that construction space, really heavy in that, you know, energy infrastructure resources, which I'm familiar with from a client perspective, but certainly not the services. So it allowed me to really um, learn a lot more and really mm-hmm. grow and grow my broad capability. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that sort of triggered the, triggered the move. Okay, fantastic. And so let's talk a little bit more about Valmec now then. So, um, you know, just to, you know, what in terms of the division of the business that you're now looking after, what are, what are your current priorities um, and focus points and, and, and where, you, uh, where are you excited to see that business grow to over the next few years? Yeah, uh, and, you know, when, when I sort of came in, that was for part of my initial remit is, you know, get this strategy really locked and loaded mm-hmm. and you know we've released a few things on the asx because we're being probably listed but you know fundamentally what's our strategy which is creating this sort of business model that's really hard to replicate so be, be something a bit more unique now of course most companies have got a unique value proposition and you know what do they want to compete in and so for us because we provide this whole construction commissioning maintenance how do we leverage that and so instead of just providing sort of general labor so mm-hmm. be it mechanical electrical civil etc we really want to be um, more specialist so we've got some really deep oem expertise we do you know testing we do industrial services all in-house versus subcontracting that out so that's kind of our strategy and what we really want to do is wrap up all these services and really you know our fundamental you know call it our mission is to be the most trusted specialist service provider mm-hmm. and you know in terms of our general vision of the company itself is you know we want to make sure that we're increasing the asset life but also lowering the total cost of ownership and so for us what does that look like it looks like because we're in-housing all of these different skills and capabilities we're able to actually provide this where a customer doesn't need to go to multiple contractors to actually get these direct services um, or have a contractor who's going to be subcontracting out anything special mm-hmm. or anything unique. So for us, that's kind of the broad strategy and where we're going. Um, in terms of, you know, what did we put out? You know, we want to grow to um, $300 million by 2023. Mm-hmm. But also, really importantly, um, we want to shift our revenue mix from just the 70% so construction revenue and 30% asset services into a more 50-50 Mm-hmm. Um, by that same time. And so what did you say the turnover was currently? We're circa 100 to 150 million. Right. So you, you're essentially intending to double within two years. Correct. 
Right. So I've got some really strong aspirations. <laughs> that is definitely, uh, you know, admirable and uh, an aggressive vote. And what, what do you think that that means for, you know, your part of the business, you know, going from 30% to 50%, you know, means that your part of the business is going to have to more than double, probably triple, really. Yeah, exactly right. And that's what sort of excited me about the role and, yep. you know, um, coming in and creating a strategy and, also having the right building blocks. We you know, can't just make up numbers to get there. Yeah. So for us, it was a two-pronged strategy. One is really integrating the capability, be unique, which will lend us to growing mm-hmm. organically. But secondly, I mentioned M&A before. And, you know, one of the key things that, you know, we discussed was how do we integrate more acquisitions into our business to actually bring more capability to the business. Mm-hmm. So we've got a couple of business units that I mentioned at the start what else do we need to actually add to our toolkit that's actually going to continue making us more unique? So there was an um, acquisition part of that um, that growth story mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And how, I mean, you've said a number of times have this conversation, you've mentioned mentors and you've mentioned ongoing professional development and so on and so forth. I mean, how do you feel if you are essentially the size of the business unit you're going to run is going to triple, there's going to be M&A, there's going to be a whole bunch of, you know, um, more complexities that come into it. How, how do you ensure that you are, you know, rising to the challenge of leading that? Because at the end of the day, I mean, um, uh, you know, you're a young guy, right? So um, uh, you've packed a lot into your career so far. What, how do you envisage you're going to be able to continue to develop in order to, you know, keep a, a tight hold on the success of all of that? Yeah, I guess it, it really comes back to um, at ALS. I was actually managing um, something a lot bigger than you know where we want to uh, okay. you know, where we want to go right now. So I sort of bring that um, you know not so much been there and done it because every situation is different. But I've had exposure mm-hmm. to size and at ALS there was you know 750 people in the region mm-hmm. um, that I'd sort of led. So I had quite early exposure and direct experience with managing that sort of complexity. And, you know, to me, it always, and again, it's going to sound cliche, goes down to the leadership team that you have underneath you. So mm-hmm. something that's quite exciting is that I'm able to actually build a leadership team, you know, almost from the ground up mm-hmm. and really, you know, that that's going to really carry the business as we go through this growth. And then, mm-hmm. you know, we're able to really structure in an optimal manner on, you know, making sure that we're ahead of this game. And, and we know that there'll be growth pains. We know that, you know, right now there's a lot of skill shortages going on, which I'm sure you're right across. Um, so for us, it really needs to be, you know, making sure we're thinking about all those aspects. And I guess, you know, not just me, but the management team that I have, they've also had exposure to very large companies mm-hmm. and they've sort of experienced that side of things. And now they're sort of experiencing quite a low bureaucratic organisation um, who is really wanting to grow really fast. So uh, there are certainly a lot of people who are attracted to that. Uh, but as you say, yeah, I think one of the issues over the last 12 months has been uh, people have been reticent to move because of fear. You know, what if I join a new business and I get COVID? What if I join a new business and they're heavily impacted by COVID? So, you know, for the last 12, 20 months, a lot of people have been, look, I'm in a secure job. It's a safe harbour in a storm. I'm just going to sit here and ride it out. But, uh, you know, those people are starting to move now. Um uh, as I think I was saying before we uh, we started recording, I had my first you know COVID you know vaccination today, and 
And it seems that, you know, this uh, vaccination drive is accelerating exponentially. So um, as people get vaccinated and as we, you know, get through these lockdowns, there's going to be quite a bit more movement. So, um, you know, the opportunity to go from a large bureaucratic, you know, behemoth into a, an agile, um, you know, entrepreneurial culture is, is, is pretty attractive to a lot of people. And what about for you, Mushrik? So um, I know that uh, one of the things that you're kind of excited about is uh, building out a bit of a... Um, uh, uh, some board experience uh, in conjunction with uh, your executive experience. How's that going? Yes, it's um, it's it's going well. Um, and and the, the the couple of boards that I'm on is volunteer, but nonetheless, yeah. whether it's volunteer or not, you, you're still you know charged with making sure that the the right strategy and growth yeah. and so on's there. So I'm on a couple of different ones. One is um, Power of Engineering, and so for those who don't know, Power of Engineering is an organisation that uh, really wants to promote more young females, you know, targeting young females to actually pursue a career in engineering. So mm -hmm. really make sure that after year nine, in years 10, 11, and 12, they've chosen STEM subjects, which mm -hmm. then has a flow-on effect uh, to engineering, which is obviously something that I'm quite passionate about. So that's a that's a really good um, organisation to be a part of. And I was sort of involved directly and now sitting on the board of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other one is the uh, University of Queensland Women in Engineering, uh, the alumni uh, board there. So I'm the vice chair of that. And again, very similar, but take it up uh, a notch where, um, you know, people who have graduated have now entered the workforce. How do they continue being successful mm -hmm. in terms of a career engineering? Again, naturally targeting more women to continue to stay in the industry because we know that the, um, that the, the percentages are still quite low, so we need to bridge that gap. Mm -hmm. why, why do you think it is that, you know, your two board roles are both you know, focused on women in engineering? Is that just kind of by chance or is that a, a particular, you know, area that you're very passionate about that made you want to go out and try and achieve those board roles? How did that happen? Yeah, um, both of them, probably slightly different circumstances. So with the Power of Engineering one, um, the founders, Gillian and Felicity, both who are now on the board, so that's been a, quite a great um, journey as they've sort of transitioned out of effectively CEO and executive team into now an independent team. Mm -hmm. I've known both of them quite, for quite some time. Mm -hmm. uh, again, you know, sort of meet them in Engineers Australia committees and so on. Uh, and then, so that's how that relationship actually started, um, having, having known those two. And then with the um, University of Queensland one, that was actually a little bit by coincidence because um, I was wanting to do more engagement and we're looking at scholarships and, you know, Valmex actually just this year, um, you know, I've, I've sought the funding from the board to encourage a third year student to provide a scholarship. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, even prior to this, this was a couple of years ago, I went to UQ and wondered what they were doing and, you know, how could we help? What do scholarships look like? And they said, well, actually, if you want to be involved, um, you know, we've got this uh, board council. Um, mm -hmm. And by the way, we're looking for a, a chair and a vice chair. And I said, well, look, uh, personally, I think given what we're trying to do, um, if, if you want me to participate as a vice chair, I'll definitely do that as a chair. Just should be female just purely because that's the right thing to do. That's what the organisation's about. So, yeah, yeah. a bit coincidental with both of those, uh, those right. appointments. I, I, I got invited to join a board today and uh, I've been on two or three not-for-profit boards and every time I get on one, I, after we're sort of 12 to 24 months, I think, Richard, what on earth did you take this on board? This is terrible. And then I finally leave and I say, Richard, never, ever, ever join a board again. Never. And then, <laughs> then of course, somebody asked me today, so hmm, maybe I could join another board. So, uh, yeah. Have you signed up? <laughs> no, I have not. Uh, I have not. But um, 
Uh, I mean, look, uh, I think I really take my hat off to people who join not-for-profit boards um, because often they're voluntary and, you know, there's a substantial amount of time that's, you know, required to invest, particularly when it's a not-for-profit that's going through, you know, challenges or change or whatever it might be. So, uh, you know, I, I'm sure that between your full-time exec role and, and your couple of boards, uh, you're obviously very busy, Mushvik. Is there anything that we haven't spoken about today in relation particularly to Valmec that you wanted to put on the table? Definitely. Uh, there is one thing, and I think it is really important uh, because, again, we're public, so, you know, everything's available. Um, I mentioned acquisition, mergers and acquisitions. So, mm -hmm. you know, we've, we've obviously been going down this path trying to find the, the right fund that ticks all the boxes. But in the meantime, um, we've actually had an approach ourselves as a company. To be acquired. So, to be acquired, which right. is um, a really interesting, um, you know, uh, time to be in the business. And, you know, I sort of almost reflect back on that ALS journey I talked mm -hmm. about earlier. So a global industrial services provider named Altrad mm -hmm. had actually just entered into a um, scheme arrangement um, to actually acquire the majority, so 98% of the holdings, um, okay. with 2% being retained by our current managing director, uh, Steve mm -hmm. Kokulich, because, um, again, we, we want to continue the business as is. Mm -hmm. So that's quite an exciting time. And, you know, for those, again, who, who don't know Altrad, excuse me, <clears throat> they're about a 1.6 billion euro uh, revenue company, really strong balance sheet. You know, they've got over a billion euro in cash uh, sitting there, 42,000 people in 50 countries, you know, started in 1985 um, in France mm -hmm. uh, by a chap named Mohad Eltrad, hence the name. Uh, and he still actually owns um, the majority of the business, which is, you know, just an amazing story at, you know, how big that's gotten from almost nothing uh, mm -hmm. just over 30 years ago. So um, that's quite an exciting time for the business, um, predominantly because they want to really bolt Valmec on to their current, um, you know, service service offering. So they've been following the group, obviously, for quite some time. We've announced uh, some very large contracts, especially in that asset services, recurring revenue. That's obviously been quite attractive. Being publicly listed, we're obviously on, on sale every day in the market. Um, but nonetheless, by doing it, and, and for those who don't know, you know, scheme versus takeover, you can read about it. But the short summary is the scheme is a friendly takeover, which is very much supported by the board right. uh, and so on. So for us, um, that's really exciting because all of a sudden, it, you know, more than, you know, um, makes up the balance sheet that mm -hmm. we have, you know, being a $50 million to now uh, into the multi-billion dollar euros. Um, but the, the great thing about it is that they want to run the business as is because they don't do what we do right now. So they're not really in that construction space. They're in industrial services, but they do more sort of painting, blasting, uh, rope access, scaffolding. So it's, again, very complementary. And for us, um, you know, I mentioned, again, M&A before. And funnily enough, you know, scaffolding, rope access, those are skill sets that we actually wanted to bring um, within an acquisition, but now it's, it's reversed. So right. they sort of bring this to the group. Uh, and so really for us, that asset services vision that I mentioned, um, that's really exciting because all of a sudden it adds overnight capability. Mm. So it's not a complete transaction yet. So we're, this is a proposed which should be finalising sometime in late September. Uh, but I think that's important um, to recognise in terms of mm. lots of career opportunities for you know, people in the business. Well, often, you know, senior executives in an organisation that are potentially about to be acquired quite... Uh, uh, pessimistic and fearful, but you sound very optimistic and excited about it, Bushwick. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, mostly driven by the fact that, you know, when I sort of, uh, you know, obviously I've known for a little while now, but 
when I sort of saw the group and then I looked at even simple things like vision and mission, and, you know, it was interesting, you know, if you look on their website, they want to be, um, you know, optimize and make assets profitable in industrial, in the industrial space. So mm-hmm. for us, that's just a, such a good marry to mm-hmm. the asset services piece. And you're exactly right. Often what would happen is the most senior exec would be very nervous about their role in the future. Mm. Given that we don't have, um, you know, that sort of that same offering in Australia, you know, integration and so on makes it, you know, quite quite a challenge that so they really do need to run the management team as is. Mm-hmm. We've got some very strong targets. We've, we've sort of walked them through and have obviously seen it being public, our broad strategy for the business. Mm-hmm. So they've sort of seen that and, you know, we've got to now execute that. And, and pleasingly, we're on, on track with that journey. Um, so, yeah, that, it is a really exciting time for the business. Well, that's awesome, Mushrik. Uh, I'm really pleased that uh, you're thoroughly enjoying the new role and uh, uh, I'm excited to hear about the future, not only in Velmec, but your own career. But I recognize you're a busy man, so uh, uh, let's wrap it up. Thanks very much for your time Absolutely. today and uh, have a fantastic afternoon. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Richard. Thank you for joining us on the Arate Podcast with Richard Triggs. If you'd like a free copy of Richard Triggs' book, Uncover the Hidden Job Market, How to Find and Win Your Next Senior Executive Role, please visit uncoverthehiddenjobmarket.com to register your details. The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.